Good morning. Okay. The tables are turned. I was trying to think of a catchy title following the past few weeks. If you remember, last week our pastor Shen was talking about manhunt. And before that, a green-eyed monster. I wanted to initially post the title called The Hunter Being Hunted. But as I thought about this, that's not exactly true. David wasn't hunting Saul. Saul continued to pursue David. But in this morning's reading, we shall see an opportunity for David to take some decisive action. He had the upper hand, and thus the tables are turned. Before I begin, will you join me in a word of prayer? Dear Lord, we thank you for the preservation and the authenticity of your word by which we can learn how you have worked in the lives of David, of your people, and how your purposes through time have unfolded through men, through women of faith. Not entirely perfect, but through their flaws, their terrible mistakes, we see that by your grace and your steadfastness, you are able to bring your eternal purposes into fruition. And so, Lord, it is with this trust in you that we come this morning, here in this sanctuary and wherever they are, the people who have been online to listen to you, and I pray that, Lord, your spirit will be with us to open up our eyes, our hearts, to be able to glean the lessons that can be obtained from these passages to the end that our lives may honour you and your name be glorified. In Christ we pray. Amen. I've given three chapters, actually, for Samuel 24, 25, and 26. I've chosen to focus on chapter 26, which is, if you know the story, is pretty identical to what happened in chapter 24. For in both cases, Saul was hunting David. And in both instances, David the opportunity. He had the upper hand. And so across the last few weeks, we, we see this flip-flop to and fro of the focus of the spotlight shining between the person of Saul, the anointed king of Israel, and of David. Three, four weeks ago, we see that David is a God-centered person. 
a God-fearing man. And because of his heart that is after God, we see that God can do miraculous things through a man of such faith. And then the focus shifts to Saul, who increasingly became more suspicious, more jealous of David. And Saul at that time has already been told by Samuel that he is no longer the anointed king, that because he failed God and was disobedient, God has anointed another person. And so Saul saw shadows of deceit and enemies everywhere, and his eyes turned upon David, a young man, shining example of bravery and courage. And after the story of how David defeated Goliath, Saul focused suspiciously on David. And there began, began the hunt, the pursuit of David by Saul, which leads us into this morning's segment of the unfolding saga. And we see in two instances, in chapter 24 and chapter 26, how David spares Saul's life. As our pastor Shen has pointed out a couple of weeks ago, on the jigsaw puzzles, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't quite like jigsaw puzzles. No. I don't have the patience. But the jigsaw puzzles of history, the pieces are coming together, falling into place. And thus, we see more and more of the hand of God and the direction in which God will fulfill His purposes. From a big-picture perspective, we can see the rise and then the decline of Saul and his kingship. We see Saul's failings. We see Saul looking at the physical instead of beyond that to the spiritual. Saul saw the huge numbers of the Philistines rallied against him. He quavered. His heart melted. He saw his soldiers abandoning him. He did not see God. So we see the failings of Saul and his downfall. We see also the young shepherd, David, emerging as a man after God's own heart. That would be a very apt epitaph for David. And I wonder if any one of us, when we pass on from this world, in our gravesite, in a headstone, here lies so-and-so, in quotation, a man after God's own heart. I can't think of a better epitaph than that, in praise of God. 
we see also David's faith and also his failings. As our pastor pointed out to us, it's not so much of the perfectness of David, but it is in the response that David showed when he made mistakes, when he is confronted of his sins. He acknowledged it, he accepted it, and he repented. And in the course of history, God has used us, you and I, imperfect people. But so long as we know where we stand, and when we make mistakes, we go back to God, and He will forgive. We also see in this big perspective how God rolls out His purposes, His perfect plan for His people, Israel. So even as we flip-flop and we see the lives of Saul and of David, we need to see the hand of God behind them and the purposes of our faithful master and savior. The big idea that we should hold in our heads is this. If God has so chosen you, and he has, we are called sons and daughters of the living God, then trust that he will surely fulfill his plans for you and through you. And may I cause us to reflect on the fourth prayer item that we trust God and that God will and can see through His purposes in us and through us. So hold on to that big idea as we go through this chapter 26. I've broken up the whole chapter into a series of segments, and um, this is the prelude, the foreword. I, I was talking to, I was messaging pastor, and I was telling him, well, this week I'm going to do a series of F words. <laughs> and he sent back the message, you know, the emoji with the, the guy sweating. <laughs> he was wondering what F word I'm trying to use. So this is the first F word, the foreword, the prelude to this chapter covering 24, 25, and 26. So here, David, in chapter 26, spares Saul a second time. And in the table, which is probably too small for you to see, and I apologize for that, but allow me to walk through the differences in chapter 24, the account of David sparing Saul's life with that of chapter 26. I'll quickly go through it. So in in chapter 24, Saul was alone and unarmed when he wandered into the cave where David was. In chapter 26, Saul was with 3,000 hand-picked soldiers and also with Abner, the commander of his army. In chapter 24, it was daytime and Saul was awake. He relieved himself, actually. 
in a cave, but he was awake. In chapter 26, it was nighttime, and Saul was asleep, as was read in the scripture by our brother Ryan. Chapter 24, Saul came to where David was. David was hiding. Saul came to him. And in 26, although Saul was pursuing David, but when David sent out his scouts to locate where Saul was, David came to where Saul was. He approached Saul. Finally, in chapter 24, what David did in his sparing of Saul's life was that he cut off a part of Saul's robe as evidence that he was near him and he could show, this is the corner of your robe. I could have done worse. And in chapter 26, David took Saul's spear and the water jug, again, as evidence that he was where Saul was sleeping. In both instances and in the chapters below, uh, between them in chapter 25, David learned patience, forbearance, not to take things into his own hands, even when opportunities presented themselves. Here, I'd like to quickly digress and, and share with you a basic principle of knowing God's will or following God. Our God is a living God, a God that has a living, ongoing relationship with us. What I'm trying to say is that we should not be guided by merely opening of doors and closing of doors. If that be the case, I would think we are none better than robots. If the door is open, I will go through. If the door is locked, I won't go through. And here, God has opened two doors, open wide. Even Abishai has said, this is a great opportunity. God must have given Saul into your hands. But David did not take action to allow Saul to be struck down. He did not respond to just opportunities because he followed God's will. He fears the Lord and he did not want his hands to be blooded, especially the blood of the anointed one. Let me come back. So David spared Saul once in the cave. Then he was hunted again. Saul, at the first instance in chapter 24, in the conversations, was telling David that he, basically Saul said, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. But he did. He hunted David again. So it was not a genuine repentance on Saul's part. If somebody has done something bad to you and you forgave that person and the person say, oh, I'm sorry, I won't ever, ever, ever do that to you again, the next two weeks, the same thing happens. What would you do? This is exactly the situation that David found himself to be. 
So David actually, in my mind, had all the more reason to kill Saul because this is the second time I have given you forewarning. I've taken a slice of your robe as evidence that I withheld my hand. And you said you would not hunt me. And there you go again. But God had taught David a very important lesson in the two chapters between them, which is chapter 25, the story with Nabal. I won't go really into this, but let me just say that David and his men was in the countryside and amongst the people and the sheep and the poultry of, of, of Nabal, who is a pretty rich person. And he, he wanted some sustenance, some food, and maybe perhaps even shelter from Nabal. But Nabal rejected David and his men. He reviled them. He cursed them. And as a result of that, I think David was angered and he called his men to take up their arms with the intention of attacking Nabal and killing him. But Nabal's wife, Abigail, intervened when she found out what had happened and pleaded with and reasoned with David. And David, upon seeing the wisdom of Abigail, had these words to say to her, Praise be to the Lord. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. And so David learned this lesson. He held back. He did not submit himself to his anger and allowed his rage to get the upper hand. And, and may I just read for you from chapter 25, what happened after that? Abigail told Nabal what she did to intervene. And, and these are the, uh, what, this is what transpired. Then in the morning, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things, and Nabal's heart failed, and he became like a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. And I think this is a very precious lesson that David learned. As much as he saw how God restrained him through the intervention through Abigail, I think that when in the second time when he saw Saul lying before him asleep, and all his sentries and his guards were all asleep, and the spear was there, he remembered the lesson of Nabal, that he did not have to raise his hand and God 
would act out his purposes himself without David raising his hand against the Lord's anointed. So in verse 1 to verse 3, I want to paint David as the fugitive. He was running away. He was being hunted. The Ziphites betrayed David a second and possibly a third time, as the story goes. Is not David hiding here and there, as was read for us? If you note, if you note how the Ziphites relate this information, they do so as a question. Is not Pastor Shen going for the uh, prayer convention? Instead of saying, you know, uh, Pastor Shen is going for the prayer convention. It's very innocuous sounding. They were just wondering, the Ziphites were saying, hey, you know, is David not hiding there? <laughs> so they could get away. They just asked a question. They did not tell Saul, David is hiding in the hills. Beware of the Ziphites in our midst. And the Lord may so allow Ziphites in our midst, perhaps to test us, perhaps as part of his overall plan. But as much as we may be aware of the Ziphites in our lives, be much more aware that God is in control, that God is sovereign. And so as a result of that, Saul went out with his 3,000 hardened chosen warriors to search for David. And, and we know from various passages that David had 600 men against the 3,000 that Saul had. One to five. Overwhelming odds. But remember, Saul has killed his thousands <laughs> and David his tens of thousands. So maybe that would even up the odds. So I was looking at the maps and, in the Old Testament days and we found, I found this Hakila, the hill. So verse 3, Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hakila facing Jeshimon. But David stayed in the desert. I, I, I stand corrected, but as far as I can research and, and figure out, Jeshimon is actually a, a, a terminology to represent wasteland or desert. So, so the desert all around. There's a desert of Ziph, a desert of Mo, Moan. So I couldn't get a better picture, so I had to consult an artist. So this is the artist's rendition. <laughs> it's me. I'm a poor artist. But suffice to say that if you see this uh, brown triangle in the middle, that's the hill, Hakila, and this camp where Saul was. And I imagine there's another, another hill where David and his scouts and maybe um, the people who are with him were there looking across to see where Saul was. And north and south to that was all desert. So this is hopefully gives you an idea of the lay of the land and, and what transpired in the following verses. 
David was fearless. He was emboldened. And many scriptural commentators and scholars attributed that to God having a part to move David in such a way. So we, we read that he sent scouts when he heard that Saul was coming to him, to where he was, because the Ziphites had told them, told Saul where he was hiding. And his scouts have confirmed that Saul is indeed here. But instead of running away, as I said, or even hiding, he approached Saul. Scripture says they were close enough to see Saul, his soldiers, were lying down. Now, it, it is very likely that it's not David himself that went out to scout where Saul was. He probably sent the same scouts out, or in some version it's called spies, to spy out the land. And they came back to him to report that the soldiers and Saul were lying down. We're not sure whether this is still in the daytime or dusk, but we're quite sure that this is not yet night because it's quite hard to see through the darkness. Well, we may have a full moon in that time. We don't know. But in more likelihood, they were resting after the long march to where uh, David is supposed to be hiding, probably to strategize how to hunt for David in the next morning when light came upon them. But they were resting, they were lying down. Some may be sleeping. Then we were told that David asked this question, who will go down with me? implying that they were actually in a high place, probably nearby, a high vantage point, looking down. And as was read for us, Abishai was the one who said, I will go down with you. Fearless indeed. And I've said, very likely, God inspired, God purposed, and God led. And so David and Abishai went by night. So this is, as the scripture says, this is actually at night already. So they probably may have waited a couple of hours for the men to settle down. Then they went down, the two of them. And there was Saul, lying asleep inside the camp, probably surrounded by concentric, concentric rings of soldiers, it wouldn't have mattered if David and Abishai went down hand in hand singing songs and shouting because as was read for us, God had put the whole army to sleep. But David came to where Saul was and he was asleep. His spear was stuck in the ground and Abner, the commander of Saul's army, was also asleep as were the soldiers lying around him. Verse 8 tells me, this is fortuitous, this is fortune, this is good luck. Because that's what 
Abishai said, Today, God has delivered your enemy into your hands. As far as Abishai was concerned, this was a God-enabled uh, opportunity. This was a wide-open gate. And Abishai says, This is an opportunity for you to get rid of Saul. Saul was asleep. The murder weapon is there. <laughs> There's no, no sentries. Uh, sorry, there were sentries. Thousands of them, but you're all asleep. And, 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 and David doesn't even have to, to do it himself. Because Abishai said, let me strike or pin Saul to the ground. And I don't even have to hit him a second time. So technically, David could just have nodded or even not say anything, and the deed would have been done, and his hands would be clean of the blood. But that's not David. He refused to take Saul's life, and he stopped Abishai. He continued to regard Saul as the Lord's anointed, although Technically, the anointing of God has already been lifted away from Saul. Remember the conversation of Samuel with Saul when Saul sinned. And, and Samuel said, what have you done? But Saul said, you are late, so I did what I did. <laughs> He did not admit the wrongdoings or the sin. And so the prophet Samuel told him in no uncertainties that God has chosen another person to replace him. And if you recall, even then, Saul insisted that Samuel follow him back so that he could worship he could sacrifice. He could make a show to the people that he is still the king. And in Samuel's favor, when in reality, the anointing of God has been lifted. David would later write in his psalm of thanks, Do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. In contrast, in Samuel chapter 22, previous weeks, Saul had ordered Doeg to kill the priests of Nob. And as our pastor spoke on that, an entire village of priests were massacred, were slaughtered, the sacrilegious slaughter <laughs> of Saul, thereby cutting off his only remaining conduit access to God. But David, by contrast, dare not, will not, out of reverence, out of fear, to cause harm to God's anointing. 
Here's the first question. How do you know when to or not to seize upon a clear opportunity that is presented to you? For the kids, how do you know when not to take advantage of opportunities that come your way? It's kind of a tough question for a kid. I suggest that you, you get the help of your parents and, and work through this. We have two minutes. Verse 9, forbearance, holding back, possibly in the fear of God. So he asked this question as much to himself as well as to Abishai who was beside him. Who can lay a hand and be guiltless? So he's very conscious, very aware of guilt, of taking action against God's anointed. It's very clear that Saul is not righteous, not anywhere near that. His hands is bladed with the massacre of all the priests. But David knows that he was not the one, not the instrument of God to remove Saul. God will, in His way, in His time, do the necessary. And again, I think He is reminded of that lesson with Nabal, that He withheld His hand and God took action and had Nabal, made him, killed him, basically. And so, 
he withheld his hand out of forbearance, holding back, and fear. Just like to, 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 to talk a little bit more about this. I think that it is not so much about the person, the individual, the named person, but the office in which the person helps or holds at that point of time. What I mean is this. Saul failed to see himself or see beyond himself, I'm sorry, to the office that God had anointed him into. He thought that he was king, and he is or was, but he did not see the hand of God behind him, that it was God that made him king. He was so full of himself. I am the king. I can do anything I want. In literally total disregard as to how God would want him to flesh out, to live out his kingship. David, on the other hand, saw beyond the person of Saul to the office of king and more importantly, to the hand of God that anointed David into the office of king. In practical terms, we should highly respect and regard the office of leadership much, much more than the person in that position. And the person that is elected, chosen, positioned into that office should do his or her best to live up to what is represented by that office. I won't go into the Malaysian office bearers. There's not enough time. Suffice to say that David did not see Saul alone. He saw God behind all that is happening. And he trusts if God put him there, God can remove him. In Romans, leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And often we hear it in this way, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And David was fully aware that God is able. So he withheld his hand. The next few verses is demonstration of the faith that David possesses. With these words, the Lord himself will strike him, Saul. Either this time, his time will come and he will die. I think as he's saying this, he remembers what happened to Nabal. Or he will go into battle and perish, which is exactly what happened to Saul. Such faith, such a surety of the outcome that David had in God who is able. David's faith frees him 
to leave the matter entirely in God's hands. He lets go and let God handle things. His act of faith is not so much in taking the spear, it is in not using it to kill Saul. We come to the second question. Is there anything you are struggling with about taking action or leaving it to God to work things out? How does this sharing help? For the children, is there a problem that you should do something about it? Or to have faith that God, in His good time, in His own way, will resolve it? Again, go to your parents. Before I move on, I just want to add that I'm not saying that we leave it to God is akin to an ostrich. There's a problem facing me. I don't want to care about this. I just want to dig my head into a hole. I'll let it be. Th that's not trusting. All right? So I'm not saying that we are irresponsible. Let the problem handle itself. No. This is an active layoff and an active conscious trust that God will resolve the matter and not let the matter resolve in itself in whatever ways. Okay, that's just a distinction I want to make. And then the next 10 verses or so, I will call it favor. 
David seemed to be seeking Saul's favor in this sense. But I put a question mark there, and, and it's for us to, to consider. Anyway, David said to <clears throat> Abishai, get the spear, and there's a water jug, and let's go. And I wonder what were David's thoughts on seeing Saul's spear stuck on the ground, close to his head, Saul's head. That spear was used by Saul, <laughs> hurled at him, minimum of three times, while David was playing his lyre when the evil spirit descended upon Saul. And, and David knew that spear <laughs> from the handle to the point. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 10, I think if you look at it, he avoided it twice. So two attempts, and 19 verse 9 is another attempt. At least three times that was recorded for us. And that very spear is now in his possession to use it on a sleeping Saul. But he didn't. The spear takes life. It's a weapon. But it's also a symbol, like a scepter, like the song or the words that we read. It's a scepter of Saul's kingship. Spear takes life. The water jug preserves life. And in, in the following verses until uh, the end of the chapter, we see David and, and Abishai leaving the camp with the, the spear and the saw and, and, the, and the jug and ascended to a, a distant hill. And as the picture showed, he held up the spear and the jug. <clears throat> he had both. He had both the ability to take life as well as to preserve life. And, and we all know that if you are in the desert, water is so, so, so critical because without water, we can't survive. So the water signifies the preservation of life and therefore he took the jug of water. So he had both. I could take your life, I could preserve your life. And again, when he did this, it was in the hope that he would gain Saul's favor. Now, I, I won't read chapter, 12, uh, chapter 26, 11 to 22, right? So David obviously felt that it was very unfair that he was being hunted relentlessly by Saul. He had to move again and again in fear, in the desert, in the wilderness. But he wanted to get Saul's attention. He probably wanted to, to, to ask Saul, why are you chasing me? What wrong have I done? But before he could get Saul to listen to whatever plea that he has to tell before Saul, he had to get Saul's attention, right? First, to get Saul's attention, and therefore he did what he did. So what better way to get Paul, Saul's attention than to spare his life for the second time? Why? So when he held up the spear and the jug, uh, the initial verses was actually Saul addressing um, Abner, the commander of the army. So I won't go into that, but in short, he's actually telling Abner, you have failed. You're supposed to guard your king. Here I have your sword, I mean, your, your, the king's spear and the water jug. You should be killed. But then, 
Saul heard David's voice, right? And David then conversed with Saul, or literally shouting out from across the distance. Why is my Lord pursuing his servant? He refers to Saul as his Lord and himself as a servant, although he need not have to, because he is now the anointed one, although he has yet to be pronounced king. David said, what have I done? And what wrong am I guilty of? Pleading to Saul. Now, let my Lord, the king, listen. So this is where he made his plea. Firstly, if it is the Lord, if it is God who incited Saul, then may God accept his offering. So David is actually telling Saul that if it is the Lord that asked Saul to pursue him, then let David offer to God an offering. It is not Saul's fight, it is between David and God. That's his first point. His second point, if it is men who did this, may they be cursed. And indirectly, he is directing this to Saul because Saul is a man. And it is in Saul's heart of jealousy, of fear, that causes Saul to pursue him to take his life. David relates his deep agony of being hunted. He is forced off the promised land and driven from his share of the Lord's inheritance. I'll, I'll come to that point shortly. And because he is forced off the land, he also says that he is forced to serve other gods, not Yahweh. And this is what the commentator, Dr. Constable, interesting name, have to say, and I quote him. The common conception in the ancient Near East was that gods, small g, ruled the areas or the countryside. As such, because David had departed from the promised land by being pursued, by being chased out of the promised land by Saul, David's mistaken understanding is that the Lord would no longer protect nor bless him because gods in the Near East, East in those days are like sov their sovereignty is based on the land or the area in which the God is supreme. So David had the misconception that because of being pursued by Saul, he is driven off the land and thus would not be protected anymore by Yahweh or blessed by him. Thus, he says, he is driven from his share of the Lord's inheritance. Interestingly, in the next chapter, David took a unilateral decision to leave the land and go into the land of the Philistines. But that is another story. So then David makes his appeal to Saul. Do not let my blood fall on the ground far from the presence of the Lord. He's in the desert. He's out of the promised land. 
he does not want to die. In short, he told Saul, please, don't kill me. But it worked. He had gained Saul's favor again. And again, we have to consider, is it a true favor? Is it a true repentance? But these are the words that Saul said. I have sinned. You have considered my life precious today. I will try not to harm you again. I will try not to harm you again. Surely, I have acted like a fool and have erred greatly. On hearing this, David replied, Here is the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. There's no record about what happened to the water jug. Probably they will take it. But he returned the spear, the scepter, the symbol of kingship back to Saul. His hopes had borne fruit. He achieved what he had set out for to gain the favour of Saul by his actions, by his sparing of his life. Holding on to the spear is pointless, pun intended. Finally, in the last few verses, David seemed to be seeking the favour, not so much of Saul this time, but of God. Listen to his words in, in verse 24. As surely as I value your life today, which is David, uh, Saul's life, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Interestingly, he did not say, as surely as I value your life, so may you value my life. He didn't ask that. He said, may the Lord value my life. He ultimately wanted God's mercy and favour in full measure. Jesus himself would later speak these words, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So David had that foresight, that deep knowledge of the character of God, to plead with God, to gain God's favour, that as I have withheld and shown mercy to Saul, may you, Lord, show the same measure, the full measure of mercy to me. And then in the parting words of Saul, he said, may you, David, be blessed. You will do great things and surely triumph. This is like an acknowledgement, awareness of Saul that he knew his time was up. And I think at that moment, he knew that David is to replace him as the anointed king of Israel. They left. There will be no more meetings between David and Saul. Saul would die in battle. So David went his way and Saul returned home. They never saw each other again. It's such a tragic ending. The final question. God has chosen you to be his own. How can you better trust God to work things out 
in an area of life that concerns you. This is where the rubber meets the road. How can we demonstrate the trust and the faith in God? And for the kids, how can you better trust God to take care of your worries? Again, go to mom and dad for help. Closing credits. For, for those of us who have seen the Marvel stories, the, the Avengers, and so on, when the show is ended, there will be credits. We will all sit down and wait because there will be another short clip on what's going to happen next. And this is, allow me to go into chapter 27, the final F word. Is there a flaw in David? In verse 1 and verse 2a, but. You know, when the Bible starts with the word but, when there's a sentence starting with but, it's usually not a good thing. But David thought to himself, how can he? And since all this time, he has been looking to God. But once we think for ourselves, we seek our own counsel, things began to unravel. But David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. He still didn't trust what Saul told him. His own counsel says this, the best thing I can do, not God can do for him, 
is to escape to the land of the Philistines, where his enemies are. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with him left. In the weeks ahead, the speakers may continue to take up this tale and we begin to see Saul, David, and God's hand playing out his purposes. In conclusion, know that God can and will bring all his purposes to pass. Be strong and of good faith, even or especially when things appear bleak. Do trust him fully to work things out in his way and his time. Let's pray. Our sovereign God, in you belongs all power and glory and honor and majesty. We pray that you will open up the eyes of our hearts that we may see beyond mere mortal flesh to see your hand at work in us and through us. And we pray that as we try our best to live our lives in witness and in honour of your name, you will grant us wisdom, restraint, discernment, and your ever-present Spirit to speak to our hearts that we may decide with faith to do the right thing and to leave things unto your hands. We ask this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Friends, would you stand with me as we respond in song? And even as we have seen how God has His unique plan